Well, good morning. It's really good to see you. Have you been enjoying the, uh, the heat wave? I thought about wearing shorts this morning. I didn't want to distract you from <laughs> the Word of God. So I'm, I'm suffering in jeans. Are you, how are you fitting? Are you all right? Are you awake? Yeah. Are you ready for a Bible study? Yeah. <laughs> More people awake than are ready for a Bible study. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read Scripture, it's like, it's like a breath of fresh air. You know, it just lifts you. It, uh, refreshes, it refreshes my soul. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. His love will no longer rebuke you, and he will rejoice over you with singing. Wow. Isn't that great? God is singing over us. And what about Romans 8, 37, 39? Brenda read it at the start. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height or depth or anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amazing. It's like a, it's like a warm hug, isn't it? However, other times... Scripture can be a little less comforting and a little more confusing. Rather than a a breath of fresh air, it can feel like a a gale force wind that sort of picks you up and spins you round and throws you to the ground and leaves you wondering, what did I just read? What happened? Um, And I feel like today's passage is maybe a little bit more like that than the first ones. But I don't want you to panic. We're going to walk through it slowly. And hopefully, by the end of this morning, you'll feel just as encouraged by what we're about to read as you did by the other two scriptures. But if you don't, you can return to Zephaniah and Romans and be be comforted all the same. So, if you haven't done so already, would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2? And we're going to read from verse 12 down to verse 17. This is what it says. To the angel... Of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, there are those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. There you go. Do you feel encouraged and refreshed and uplifted by that scripture? I didn't think so. You see, part of the problem with this passage, and, and part of the problem, in fact, with the whole of Revelation, is that John assumes that we know what he's talking about. By which I mean, he assumes that we have the same points of reference that he does. It's sort of like, 
You know when you've been watching a TV show for like six seasons and then your friend comes and sits next to you and they're like, so who's that and what are they doing and why are they over there and what's the thing with the stone? And you're like, I haven't got time to explain six seasons worth of plot to you. <laughs> Go back and watch the first 120 episodes and then we'll have a conversation. <laughs> All right? It's a similar sort of thing to that. John assumes our knowledge. And there's a few different ways that he does this. Firstly, he assumes that we know the locations that he's talking about. This week it's Pergamum, last couple of weeks it was Ephesus and Smyrna. Many of them, of course, only exist as kind of ruins today. Secondly, he assumes we know the people that he's talking about. Characters of the story, last, this week um, it's someone called Antipas. Next week it's going to be somebody that he refers to as a Jezebel. Obviously people that are long since died. Who were they? What was their story? He also assumes that we know the imagery that's being used. He talks about double-edged swords and, and white stones, not things that feature too prominently in our modern context, unless you're into medieval cosplay and decorative gardening, I guess. Fourthly, he assumes that we understand his callbacks, his, his references to earlier episodes, like the Old Testament. He mentions Balaam and Balak and the Israelites and hidden manna, callbacks to Exodus and Number and Jeremiah, not parts of Scripture we normally commit to memory. Fifthly, he assumes we understand the geopolitical, socio-economic and religious factors of the day. <laughs> Some big words for you there. I've had my thesaurus out. Um, you know, the challenges that the people were facing. He mentions the, the Nicolaitans here, doesn't he? Who were they? What was their deal? What did they want? You know, unless we're a first century Middle Eastern history scholar, we might struggle here. Um, sixthly, he, he assumes that we understand the spiritual nature of our world, that there are things going on underneath the surface. He mentions Satan a couple of times. He mentions listening to the, the spirit, and he wants to wake his listeners up to the reality of the spiritual battle that they're in. And this sort of stuff can be hard to understand, even at the best of times. And seventhly and finally, he assumes that we understand the language that he uses. And I don't necessarily mean um, Greek, which it was written in originally, but the kind of religious ideas he puts forward. He talks about faith and witness and idols and immorality, and he encourages us not to sin but to repent. And these sorts of words and concepts might not be familiar to us. And he just assumes that we know all of this stuff before we read it. So it's no wonder um, we're left scratching our heads. And so before we can kind of get to the heart of the message for us today, we're going to need to do a little bit of digging. We're going to need to remind ourselves of some stuff we might have forgotten and, and maybe learn some stuff we didn't know. So hopefully you've got your notepads at the ready. We'll start simply. I'll try and check in with you throughout and just make sure it's all going in. Um, the location was Pergamum. It begins this way, it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, you might remember from previous weeks, um, an angel in Greek is, is the word angelos, which essentially means messenger. So it's the one who brings messages to the church, essentially um, the pastor or leader. If you look at John's vision back in chapter 1, it talks about the leaders of the church as being in the hands of Jesus, which is both beautiful and terrifying at the same time. Um, the word church here is ecclesia, meaning God's called out people, called out ones, God's people on earth who have been set apart in the location of Pergamum. And Pergamum itself was this rich and 
powerful city which is located in what is now modern-day Turkey. Here's some photos from the tourist board for you. When John wrote Revelation, Pergamum had been the political capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor for over 300 years, and it was sort of famed for its, its culture and its education. It had the second largest library in the ancient world, second only to the Library of Alexandria, and contained over 200,000 scrolls. It also had um, one of the, the, the greatest theatres ever created. It could seat 10,000 people in rows of 78 seats. If you needed the toilet mid-performance, there was no hope. So they were clever and they were, they were artsy, but they were also religious. They had temples all over the place. There was a temple to Dionysus, the Greek god of wine. You can imagine what happened in that temple. The AA building was next door. <laughs> there was a temple to Athena, the Greek god of wisdom, made sense with the library close by. There was a temple to Demeter, the Greek god of the harvest. We've got wine, we've got food. There was a temple to Zeus, the uh, Greek god of sky and order and justice. There was a very, very famous temple to Asclepios, the Greek god of healing, where you could go and have snakes crawl over you and it would make you better. But it wasn't just Greek gods. There was Egyptian gods. There was a temple to Isis. There was three temples where you could go and worship the Roman emperor as well. Essentially, if you visited Pergamum on a school trip, you would come back with loads of pencil sharpeners and rubbers from all the gift shops you would have had to go through. There was loads to see and do. It was brimming with ideas about life, the universe, and everything in between. Philosophy and faith and science and superstition all mushed together in this city of culture and arts and education. So in many respects, similar to the towns and cities that we have today. We don't have a temple to the god of wine, but we have pubs and we have off-licenses. We don't have a temple to the god of wisdom, but we have universities and colleges instead of a temple to the God of justice, we have courts and prisons. Instead of temples to the God of healing, we have hospitals and pharmacies. And instead of the God of harvest, we have two Aldis and a little. <laughs> the point is, things might look a little bit different today, but our basic needs and our basic desires have remained the same. And so it's not too much of a stretch for us to say that this message to Pergamum might also be a message to Tamworth, might also be a message to us. So we could read it this way to the messenger of the one who were called out of this world. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Who has a sharp, double-edged sword? I know Tim does. He's got his hand up. <laughs> but in this case, it's not talking about Tim. It's talking about Jesus. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> and Jesus describes himself in different ways depending on the church that he's writing to. When he writes to Ephesus, he calls himself the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. When he writes to Smyrna, he calls himself the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life again. When he writes to Tyrathyre, he calls himself the son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. If we've got any um, people that are writing worship songs in our church, Becky and Aid, if you need some more ways of describing Jesus, Revelation is a good place to go. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, it's the way that Jesus is currently revealing himself to John. In Revelation chapter 1, John sees this image of the resurrected Jesus in front of him. And, and, and he's, it's terrifying. He falls to his feet as though dead. 
It's the same way that, that Peter responds when he sees the power and might of Jesus for the first time. He says, oh, get away from me, Lord. I'm, I'm unworthy. And Jesus responds to both men in the same way. He says, don't be afraid. And then he gives them a task to complete, which is essentially to be a witness to his message. So this is how Jesus is revealing himself to John. But I think the second reason Jesus describes himself to the different churches in different ways is because he's trying to highlight the attributes of himself that they needed to be reminded of. So when he writes to Ephesus, he talks about being the one who walks among the lampstands because they're about to have theirs removed. When he writes to Smyrna, he reminds them that he died and came back to life because they were about to suffer persecution. And when he writes to Pergamum, he reminds them of the power of his words over their lives. Because it's his words and his promise that these people need to come back to. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of heart. Jesus needed to get into their hearts. And so we're going to see why in a few moments' time. But for now, we can read verse 12 this way. To the messenger of the ones who were called out of this world, these are the words of Jesus. And I'm cutting straight to the heart of the matter. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Jesus knows where we live. He knows what it's like. He knows the challenges that we face. He also knows when we choose faithfulness in the face of temptation. And that's key. Satan is mentioned twice in this verse. Pergamum is described both as his, the place where he lives and the location of his throne. And there's lots of different theories as to why that might be. Um, some think it was because of the throne-shaped altars to other gods like Zeus. Some think it's because they worshipped the Roman emperor as a god. Others think it's to do with their reliance on wisdom or perhaps their sinfulness or maybe all of the above, but I don't think we should get too hung up on this idea of Pergamum being the home of Satan. Because for one thing, it's not there anymore. And so he's not. And for another, Satan has many, many other properties. He's very happy to come and make his home wherever he's made welcome. If we roll out the welcome mat, he'll waltz right in and treat the place like his own. The only reason Satan has any power in Pergamum was because people gave it to him. They went after other gods, they denied the truth, they sought carnal pleasures, they mistreated each other, and so on and so on and so on. In other words, they made him feel right at home. Actually, in this context, a throne refers to uh, a chair that has a footstool. So it's literally saying he has put his feet up. <laughs> Satan has made himself very cosy in your city. We can read it, I know where you live. Satan is very comfortable there. And yet he says, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas. Now we don't know a lot about this character, not really. There's a church tradition that holds that um, he was martyred for the faith, he was um, roasted alive inside a bronze bull um, for refusing to worship the emperor, which is a cheery thought. Um, 
But whether that's true or not, what's clear from the text is he was a man of faith. In a city where God was being ignored, he remained true to what he believed, and it cost him his life. But the church didn't suffer. They didn't renounce their faith. They remained true. And this is a a pattern that we see in Scripture ever since Acts 8, when the first great persecution breaks out against the church, and it says that they're scattered, but wherever they went, they continued to preach the gospel, to preach the word. And Jesus commends them for it. He calls Antipas his faithful witness. He says, I know where you live. Satan is very comfortable there, but he hasn't defeated you yet. But you see, there's another tactic of the enemy, something far more subtle and far more insidious than out-and-out persecution. It's actually a very, very old tactic, which is why we're about to look at a reference to the Old Testament. He says in verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what's this all about? Well, Balaam was a, he was a pagan prophet. He was quite significant. He's sort of seen um, in Jewish history kind of as the anti-Moses. Um, here's a picture of him doing a dab on a donkey in front of um, an angel. If you don't know what a dab is, speak to young people. He had power and influence in his day, but he wasn't on God's side. And if you're a loose end later, you can kind of read about it in Numbers 22 to 24. Um, But essentially the story is this. Um, The Israelites, who were God's chosen people, God's nation, they were on their way to the promised land. And they'd been on their way for for quite a while by this point, and they had arrived at a region called Moab. And as they were going through the region, um, the king of Moab, a guy called Balak, sees them and he thinks, gosh, that's an awful lot of people. This could be trouble. I better do something about this. And so he sends men to hire Balaam to come and curse the nation of Israel. And that doesn't work out too well. To start with, God doesn't allow him to go, and then he he does allow him to go, but he says, you'll only be able to say the things that I tell you to say. And then just to kind of drive home his point even more, he has Balaam's own donkey humiliate him. It's a really, it's a weird one. But have a look for yourself later. Eventually, however, Balaam reaches Balak, and they go up to this really high point where the whole nation of Israel can be seen. And they build altars, and Balaam tries to pronounce his curse over the nation. But instead of cursing them, words of blessing come out of his mouth. And they're a bit surprised and a bit taken aback. So they think, all right, well, maybe it's the location. Maybe the wind's blowing the wrong way. We'll try somewhere else. So they go around a bit further, and, and he tries to curse them again, but it's more blessing. And so they, they try one more time. They go to another location. Again, he tries to curse them, but again, it's more blessing. Blessing until eventually Balak just says, you know what, mate, forget it. Just go home. It's rubbish. I'm not paying you for what I've asked you to do. Just leave. But the point of the story is that because God had already promised to bless the nation of Israel and God's words cannot be undone, there was no way for Balaam to curse them, try as he might. The direct attack had failed. 
Now, we don't really hear too much more about um, Balaam, except for when he's killed a few chapters later. But what we find out is that having failed to curse the nation, he tries another tactic. Before he leaves Balak, he gives him some advice. He says, if you can't curse them, maybe you can corrupt them. If you can't curse them, maybe you can corrupt them. Maybe you can bring them round to your way of thinking. And so in Numbers 25, it says this. While Israel was staying in Shittim, which is a terrible name for a place, <laughs> the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to sacrifices made to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed to these gods, and so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Baal of Peor was the god of the Moabites, not the god of Israel. And so although they didn't renounce their God, they were still true to him in one sense. Their loyalty was divided and their purity was compromised. And so when we come to Revelation and we read that there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, we get a picture of what is happening. Although these people hadn't walked away from God, they were flirting with sin. They were tolerating things in their lives that shouldn't be there. In this case, it was idolatry and sexual immorality. If you want it sort of even plainer than that, they were two-timing God. They wanted to keep their relationship with him, but they also wanted to live however they pleased. They wanted to do the things that made them feel good. They wanted to fit into the world around them, whereas once they were the called-out ones, they are now the do-whatever-we-can-to-fit-in ones. That was the teaching of Balaam. Just returning to the Old Testament for a minute, that generation of Israelites remained in the desert because God gave them what they wanted. He wanted to take them to the promised land, but they settled for less, and so they died in the desert. The other teaching that's mentioned here is that of the Nicolaitans. Um, This group have had a mention already in the letter to Ephesus where Jesus praises them for being against it, but the Pergamum crew seem to be warming up to their ideas. We don't really know a lot about it. Some people think the Nicolaitans were followers of uh, Nicholas, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 6 as being one of the seven who organised the food distribution, because it talks about him there being a convert to Judaism, and they think, well, maybe he had a past and all the rest of it. But whether that's true or not, it seems like much like the followers of Balaam, what they were wanting to do was accommodate sin in their lives. They felt because Jesus had freed them from the law, they could live however they pleased do whatever they wanted. As I mentioned earlier, Pergamon was full of temples to other deities, temples where you could get up to all sorts of trouble. There was ritual prostitution. There was the misuse of substances and alcohol. There was ways of inducing trance-like states to remove social um, inhibitions. You were encouraged to engage in animalistic behavior. I mean, basically, it was your typical Friday night in town, right? Get drunk, hook up with someone, take some stuff you shouldn't. You haven't really come that far. Have we? But the Nicolaitans, they were wanting to say, this is fine. This is all right for you as believers. Just crack on because Jesus has set you free. But Jesus wanted them to know that actually his expectation of them was higher. Paul wrote about this idea in his first letter to the Corinthians. You might remember from our studies a few uh, years ago, he talks about how they were tolerating a man who was having sex with his father's wife and were proud of it. They're saying, hey, look how tolerant we are. And Paul says, no, guys, you should be in mourning. 
This is the sort of stuff you need to separate yourself from because it's not good for you. It's not bringing you closer to God. And he goes on to say in chapter 6, he says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body, for it says the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who have you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price and therefore honour God with your bodies. He wants the church to wake up to the dangers of flirting with sin, the danger of two-timing God. He says it's the Holy Spirit that's living inside of you, but you're inviting other guests in. And they don't get on together. They can't live peaceably. You're at war with yourself. You need to kick out the one that's making a mess of your life and keep the one who's making the place clean. Be responsible landlords for your own lives. And I I just feel like that this message is is true today as it was then. In fact, I would go as far as to say that this is the primary tactic that I think the enemy uses in this country. Let's just be honest with ourselves this morning. The reality is... Probably none of you are going to lose your life for your faith. But you might lose your faith because of the way that you choose to live your life. Because we dabble in things we shouldn't. We, we play with sin. We convince ourselves it's fine. We can cope. And all the while we're yoking ourselves to things that are ultimately going to destroy us and leave us in the desert. I think it's actually got more subtle. You know, regular and excessive drinking is normalized. Pornography is mainstream. Greed is encouraged. Anger, jealousy, and pride are all filtered through social media. We need to kind of fight for our purity in this world. To the messenger of the ones that are called out of this world, these are the words of Jesus, and I'm cutting straight to the heart of the matter. I know where you live. Satan is very comfortable there, but he hasn't defeated you yet. However, you need to be careful. Because some of you are tolerating sin in your lives. He says, repent therefore. Repent means turn around, means go a different direction. He says, otherwise I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We've already learned that the sword is the word of God. God's word stands against those who set themselves up uh, in opposition to him. I think it's fascinating that the Old Testament example we have in this letter is that of Balaam, who tried to, curse God, tried to curse God's people with his words, but couldn't because God had already promised to bless them. God's word is always final. The reason we don't align ourselves with sin is because God's word tells us that sin has already been defeated. Sin is the losing side. Paul writes this in Romans 6. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. 
We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You're dead to sin, alive to God. That's what Jesus did. Wow. That's the the message translation of Romans 6, but I love that. Why would you want to speak a dead language when your mother tongue is the words of life? You need to be careful because some of you are tolerating sin in your lives. To those I say, turn around and come back to life before it's too late. Are we all right? I forgot to check in. Are you okay? There's a little bit more at the end that I have to share with you because it's really exciting. There's a promise. There's a promise for those who hold on. It says in verse 17, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the one who is victorious, that's the one on the winning side, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Two things, and then I'll wrap up. Firstly, hidden manna, what is it? Well, it's manna that's been hidden. (laughs) I know that's really helpful to you. But what's interesting is there is a reason it was hidden. And again, it's to do with unfaithfulness. You see, manna was the substance, if, if you don't know, manna was what was provided by God to the people of Israel when they were in the desert. It was this food that appeared each morning. It was kind of white. It tasted like uh, wafers made with honey. It probably wasn't Slimming World friendly, although if it was from God, it was definitely sin-free. <laughs> Where are you, Nathan? I need you. <laughs> I know a few of you are on Slimming World, so I thought I'd sneak that in for you. But when the people no longer needed manna to survive, God told Moses to put some of it in a jar as a way of reminding future generations of his faithfulness and goodness to them. It's described in Hebrews as a golden jar. It ended up in the temple. And it's believed by ancient rabbis that when Jeremiah was speaking about God's coming judgment, he held up the jar and he said to them, See the word of God. Look at his faithfulness. Look at how good he has been to you in the past. But of course, they didn't listen and the temple was destroyed. And the jar of manna was reportedly hidden somewhere on Mount Sinai. And what was believed is that when the Messiah would come, the jar would be found again. Didn't Jesus say, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven? Interesting, isn't it? And so to receive the hidden manna is to receive a blessing from God. And we know as Christians that that blessing is now found in Jesus. The second bit of this is the, the stone with the new name thing. White stones had all sorts of different uses in um, John's day. Generally speaking, it was uh, indicated some sort of favour. Um, so you might get a white stone if you won a victory in a sporting event. Um, if you were acquitted at court, it was black stones for guilty, white stones for innocent. It might be an invite to a banquet. It might be a sign of, of friendship. Um, my son regularly gifts me stones that he finds on the way to school. I don't know why. Uh, But normally speaking, it's it's a good thing to receive a white stone. However, the bit I think is interesting here is the new name. Because whenever we see new names being given in Scripture, it's always coupled with the promise of future blessing. 
So in Genesis 17, when Abraham is 99 years old, God promises he'll become the father of many nations, and he says, no longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. And he changes his wife's name to Sarah, meaning mother of nations. In Genesis 32, Jacob is renamed Israel, meaning having power with God. In Matthew 16, Jesus renames Simon Peter. And he says, Peter, I'm going to use you to build my church. And so what we see in this promise of hidden manna and the giving of a new name, there's both rediscovering of past blessing and the promise of a future. Rediscovering of past blessing and the promise of a future. Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah when he says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. When we keep God at the centre of our lives, he brings us back to the blessing of the past and sets us on the right course for the rest of our lives. So, to the messenger of the ones who are called out of the world, these are the words of Jesus, and I'm cutting straight to the heart of the matter. I know where you live. Satan is very comfortable there, but he hasn't defeated you yet. However, you need to be careful, because some of you are tolerating sin in your lives. And to those I say, turn around and come back to life before it's too late. Hear what I say and I will bless you as I have in the past and I will in the future. What a simple passage of scripture. So easy to understand. That's the uh, Tamworth Elim translation down there. I wonder if the band would um, come and join me. I'll just bring this to a close in a minute or two. Because I think, there's a, I think there's a response to this this morning for us. When the enemy can't defeat us through persecution, he'll try to corrupt us through sin. Whatever that might be for you. It might be, as in the case here, idolatry or sexual sin. It might be substance abuse. It might be an attitude of heart, it might be anger or bitterness or unforgiveness or pride or greed or jealousy. I don't know. For me, it's normally a few. And he lets us dabble, dip our toes in like a, a drug pusher. The first ones are always free. And he'll help us find a way to justify it to ourselves, to accommodate it in our lives until we become so consumed with it that we fail to notice that the presence of God has left. And you might be in that place this morning. And I, I don't mean that in, in a judgmental way at all, because that's all of us from time to time. Jesus knows where we live, right? That's what he says, I know where you live. He knows how comfortable the enemy is in Tamworth or Litchfield or wherever you might be from. The trick is to make sure that he's not comfortable here. It's all right for him to be comfortable out there. We know we've got a fight on our hands. But we're in trouble when he's comfortable here. In our heart. So in a minute, I, just, I want us just to pray together. I'll just, I'll just pray over you. And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit just to show us those areas of our lives where perhaps we've been tolerating sin. Where we've just allowed things to creep in that we know shouldn't be there. And then we're going to do as the letter instructs. We're going to repent. 
And we're going to invite God's Spirit to come and live with us again. And we're going to claim Jesus' victory over us. We're going to say to God, I've died to sin and I don't want to speak a dead language anymore. I just want to speak the words of life. Because I know those are the, those are the words that are going to take me forward in you, God. And as we do that, we can be assured that we'll receive hidden manna, the bread of life that is Jesus, and that he will remind us that we have a future and we have a hope beyond our expectations. He always allows us to start again. There's never a point where he goes, oh, that's it, you've messed up too many times. As long as we turn back to him, he'll meet us where we are. So would you stand with me? Is that all right?